0: Amen. If you're able to remain standing one minute longer, I want to invite you to do so and join me in the book of Romans, chapter 15. Romans 15. We'll pick up today where we left off and we will conclude this series. We began uh, really before Easter. This is part 7 of 7, as it turns out. Romans 15 and we'll begin reading together in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify god for his mercy as it is written therefore i will praise you among the gentiles and sing to your name and again verse 10 it is said rejoice o gentiles with his people and again praise the lord all you gentiles and let all the peoples extol him and again isaiah says the root of jesse will come Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Now, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we once more... Having adored you, having confessed our great need for rescue, having thanked you for the wonderful cross, we now offer to you these simple requests. What we know not, will you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And who we are not, would you make us? For Christ's sake, amen. You may be seated at around forty eight a d Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from the city of Rome. this of course Some 25 years after the ascension of the resurrected Jesus. The church, therefore, was relatively well established. 3,000 Jews, of course, who spoke various native languages after being expelled all over what is now the Roman Empire, and growing up in various countries with different native tongues or languages, they all came together at the Feast of Pentecost, famously in Acts chapter 2, where they all heard the good news about Jesus in their own native language. And so many Jews converted to this new sect of Judaism called Followers of the Way, And for the next 10 years or so, the church was primarily made up of Jews who were converting to this new sect, followers of the way. Um, They were called this, of course, because of the now famous words of Jesus, I am the way. In a city called Antioch, eventually Christians began to be Mocked and called Christians. The word means little Christ. Look at these little Christs. Look how they wash each other's feet. Look how they serve. Observe their humility. Observe their meekness. Observe their kindness. Pathetic little Christs. Look at you little Christ we read there in Acts chapter 10 it was there that they first were called Christians not followers of the way but Christians and so from that point onward we have this distinct moniker not Jewish converts to the followers of the way but Christians and not merely Jewish converts but now firmly also non-Jews joining the church. Much to the chagrin of Jews, non-Jews who were not circumcised, who were not being compelled to keep the Mosaic law, were part of the church. And this caused no little consternation and division in the first few decades of the church's existence. Now again, Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews. This was sort of a rite of passage uh, for uh, Caesars or emperors in Rome. It was to satisfy the population by persecuting the Jews, the Jews who refused to worship all of the Greek and Roman gods the Jews who refused to pay homage to these various gods who oversaw the weather and travel and the seas and economies and famines, because these Jews, and subsequently including these Christians who were part of this Jewish sect called followers of the way, because these people would not pay homage. That's why we had this earthquake six months ago, and thousands were killed. It's their fault. And this was a common idea that spread around the first century Roman Empire, and so it was something of a rite of passage for uh, pretty much every new emperor to alleviate the people's frustration by persecuting the Jews and subsequently the Christians. And so as part of that, Claudius expelled all the Jews from the city of Rome and what happened was for five years no Jews were allowed to live in Rome and therefore the church in Rome um, became very non-Jewish. A lot can happen in five years, right? If you have children, you know a lot seems to happen in, you know, five days. Uh, Five years is a, well, truly for a five-year-old it's a lifetime. Right, And from birth to five, boy, you've got a lot of change. And so the church became very non-Jewish in those five years before Claudius' death and the redacting of that edict. And when the Jews all returned to this capital city of Rome and began to once more participate in the local community, including the church body, um, there was a serious problem. We're not being Jewish enough. And essentially, the book of Romans was born. From chapter 1, verse 1, we've been talking about this tension, either directly or indirectly, for a year. That brief review of the history of the church in Rome, I offered a year ago <laughs> this is the backdrop this is the whole underpinnings of this entire letter it, it it culminates to one degree or another in several places climactically one of which is most crucial romans 323 paul says all have sinned jew non-jew Everyone is a sinner. Everyone falls short of God's glory. Everyone is in need of rescue. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. If we don't recognize this tension boiling beneath the surface, we'll pass through verses like Romans 3.23 and only recognize half of its importance. It's a universal statement that can be pulled out of context and thrown onto the table without question. But with the understanding of the undercurrent of division between Jew and non-Jew, the statement takes on more meaning. It's colored in, if you will, instead of being a black and white outline. Now the reason why I want to go through that and remind us of this tension is because we're coming essentially to the final piece of instruction regarding the undergirding disunity that was the purpose for this letter we're coming to it today we're Getting to the, if you will, the, the Z at the end of the alphabet. That is all of Paul's instructions regarding the necessity of the unity of the body of Christ. For all have sinned. Right? In other places, is, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Right? And so in the, the final bit of instruction to combat this obvious, painful disunity that is festering in the church like an open wound. Paul uses verse 7 as something of a hinge to this final point. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It is the introductory statement to the final principle of Christian unity, even as it is the final statement of the third point of Christian unity in verses 1 through 7. It's a hinge, okay? If Jesus can accept us with all of our sin and selfishness, with all of our mixed motives and foolishness, we can certainly accept one another. So accept one another, differences aside, heritage aside, specifically Jew or non-Jew aside. If Jesus can accept you with all of your darkness, then you can certainly accept one another. Otherwise, we're saying our standards are higher than that of Jesus. Jesus can forgive them, but I can't. You don't know what she said. You don't know what he did. Jesus can forgive, but my standards are a little bit higher. It sounds totally foolish and nonsensical, doesn't it? And yet, by implication, we say these words. Jesus was criticized in Luke 15, By the self-righteous, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners. So Jesus can forgive, but you cannot. Jesus can welcome, receive warmly, but you cannot. To insinuate that our standards are higher than that of Jesus, John Stock calls this the height of pride. No, instead of being divided over non-essentials, non-moral preferences, matters of liberty, Welcome or accept one another. It's verse 1 of chapter 14. It's here again in verse 7 of chapter 15. Accept one another as Christ has welcomed you. And look at Matthew 10, verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And so Paul says, as a as a blanket statement, as a thesis statement, chapter 14, verse 1, and he reinforces it here as the hinge pin leading into the final principle of Christian unity. He says, accept one another, welcome one another in, bring them in close intimately. By doing so, you are welcoming Christ Himself, and by welcoming the Son, you are receiving the Father. All offered as a promise to the one who decides to not let petty things disrupt the unity of the church. Isn't that a wonderful promise? I mean, you kind of hold them up, if you will. You know, you have like two columns, you know, pros and cons, or you have have two pieces of fruit. You have a banana and a papaya, you know. You hold these two things up and you compare them. Which one do you want to hold on to? Do you, do you really want to hold on to your bitterness and your resentment and your differences of opinion? Or do you want the indwelling presence of the Son, the indwelling presence of the Father, through the person and work of the Spirit, that 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 light that guides you on the path that voice of comfort and hope and instruction that that thing where the the where Jesus said don't worry the spirit will bring to your remembrance all the things that I've told you and in the moment you hear the the words of scripture ringing in your mind as you sit with your cousin who just lost You know their child and the words of Scripture come to you words of comfort words like a balm to a wounded soul and Your mouthpiece becomes the mouthpiece of God Why because we've welcomed one another and as such we receive the Son and we receive the one who sent the Son all in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit or Alternatively, you can just keep your bitterness. (laughs) Right? It's a simple contrast Paul sets up for us. And then finally, what's offered, verse 7, as the ultimate motivation of Jesus? It's for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What's the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? What is the chief end of man? Or the New City Catechism that we send out weekly, what is, the, what is man's primary purpose? And I know a few of you know the answer. Go ahead. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. In verse 7, we see Jesus truly as the ultimate man, the picture of mankind as he was always meant to live, doing all things for God's glory. He's the true man, the real man. He's the man, right? Doing all things for God's glory, not for his own. And in this, finding real joy in fellowship with the Father. He's the man, Well, this brings us to the fourth and final principle of unity pertaining to Christian liberty. And that is simply this, rejoice. Celebrate together in God's marvelous plan to bring humanity together, listen, where we would otherwise remain divided. Rejoice in God's master plan. How do you uphold Christian unity? Rejoice in God's master plan. That doesn't have anything to do with unity, not directly, (laughs) and that's kind of the point. This might be the most remarkable part about unity, real Christian unity. When done right, the unity of the saints is joyful, not reluctant. It's not begrudging, it's not with gritted teeth, but peering across insurmountable differences of opinion. Insurmountable differences in preference, background, heritage, culture, language, and celebrating our oneness in Christ. No other force of nature could bring such different people together. Across the world, sure, but in this room is enough. No other force of nature could cause two of you individuals to be knit together as one to be friends to be brother and sister we're so different i mean there's people in this room who who grew up on farms what you did what with the cows every morning there's some of you Neanderthals who had your milk delivered to you in the glass jars, like from the books I read as a child. What kind of backward, weird, ancient world did you come from? You weirdos. We go to the grocery store to get our homogenized milk, okay? It comes in jugs, or in school lunch, it comes in those impossible-to-open paper cartons, okay? That's where milk comes from. You're milking cows? What year is this? Right? And then others of you, of course, like me, you grew up in remarkably different circumstances. Some of our skin is light. Some of our skin is dark, And everything in the world around us tells us that that is an insurmountable divide. Some of us have done quite well over the years, built businesses, we've had success. Others of us have not done so. Right? The whole rubbing two nickels together thing. Friends, there is nothing in this world. There is no other force of nature that could bring together such a diverse group of people. No government structure, no shared experience, no legal contract, no childhood bond. No, in Christ we are united at the deepest and most real part of us, that is in our spirit. In the part of us that is eternal, we are bonded to Christ, and he to us, and thus one to another. Governments will rise and fall. Legal contracts will be drawn up and broken. Childhood bonds will be shattered by the embrace of new ideas. But the bond of peace in Christ cannot be broken. And so Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice. Celebrate. Celebrate your remarkable differences because that is part of God's master plan. Orthodox Jews hold to 613 laws that govern life. 365 are in the negative tense. They say one for every day of the solar calendar. One don't for every day of the year. That's a fun way to live. (laughs) Don't eat, don't touch, don't look, don't go, don't say, don't think, right? Not, not that they're all bad. Much of that is very good. I have a similar list in my house for my children. Don't, 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 right? It's an ever-growing list, right? No, 365 are in the negative. 248 are in the affirmative. They are positive. Rejoice, celebrate, meditate, pray, enjoy, etc., Now in this series on Christian unity, we've certainly explored the negative. Do not use your Christian liberty to cause another person to stumble. Do not destroy your brother in the exercise of Christian liberty, which is to say to, to send him into spiritual turmoil. Do not flaunt your liberty with no regard for the weaknesses of your brother or your sister in Christ. On either side of the liberty paradox do not condemn your brother for what he enjoys or doesn't enjoy and do not judge your brother the other way for what he enjoys or doesn't enjoy and with six verses here at this middle portion of chapter 15 Paul points to Jesus as the ultimate destroyer of that which is dividing his church Paul points to Jesus as the the ultimate destroyer of that which is dividing his church. And so I'd like for us to observe briefly three aspects of Jesus' ministry, and then we'll see three results of Jesus' accomplishments. Three aspects of Jesus' ministry, three results of Jesus' accomplishments. Let's consider first and foremost, number one, the role for Jesus. The role. Uh, getting a part in a play is apparently a pretty, um, a pretty nerve-wracking experience. Uh, you, you go and, and you, you, you know, perform some pre-rehearsed lines, or you, you say some words that are supposed to be part of some scene in front of a panel of judges who are just sort of staring at you, and then they say something to the effect of, okay, you can leave now, and then you wait. Right? And apparently, when it comes to theater, like live theater production, um, there typically, historically, comes a point when at a central location at the theater, the cast is posted on the wall. You don't get a personal phone call. They just put it up there. And it's like this. Like the lead... The female lead, and the male lead, and this person, and the doctor, and the lawyer, and the the annoying little kid, right? Like, that's the parts in the play. And it's like, not my name, not my name, not my name, not my name, not my name. Alternates, not my name, not my name, right? Not me, not me, right? It's the role that you're hoping to play. Uh, And uh, apparently, uh, apparently this can be distressing (laughs) and not super fun. Well, along those lines, I'd like for us to think about the role for Jesus. The role he was to play. Paul tells us something of the role. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. I tell you that Christ, that is, the Anointed One, the Messiah, became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Well, let's talk about what this means for the role that Jesus was to play. He was in his flesh a Jew. He became a servant to the circumcised. Circumcision being the sign of God's covenant people. He was in his flesh a Jew. He was the The long-awaited shoot of Jesse that is David's dad of the tribe of Judah the son of Jacob the descendant of Abraham Jesus was born in the flesh a Hebrew secondly he was sent first to the Hebrews he was born in his flesh as a Jew and he was sent to the Jews right For I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. He became a servant to the circumcised. Jesus was first a minister to the, quote, lost sheep of Israel, Matthew 15. And as such, Jesus confirms God's faithfulness to his promises that to Israel a Savior would be born. A Savior will be born among you. Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a Savior is given. He will sit on the throne of David. He was sent to the Jews as a Jew. And he fulfilled promises made to the Jews. Isaiah 35, say to those who... Who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What will it look like when he comes to save us? The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. No mention of, you know, raising an army to overthrow the Roman government. (laughs) No, ears opened, eyes made well, mute mouths singing with joy. I mean, have you ever wondered why Jesus healed the deaf, made the lame walk, and made the blind to see? Why not other stuff? Why not other people? What was the point of healing some people with ailments, but then only having a three-year ministry? Had he lived longer, imagine the amount of people he could have healed. But in thinking this way, we missed the point. The point of the miracles was to authenticate his message. The physical healing was not an end unto itself, it was the visible fulfilling of the promise that when Messiah comes, these things will take place, then you will know. That's him. This is why Jesus answered the way he did when John the Baptist asked him from prison, are you the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? Jesus quoted Isaiah's prophecy as a means of an answer. Jesus, the Jewish king, fulfills the promises made to the Jews in order to give confidence that to those who look to him would have hope. He could have had a traveling ministry, a traveling healing ministry, right? Right? He could have done his jacket like those clowns, but it would have been real. He would have no doubt been impervious to disease, leading to extraordinarily long life. You think Jesus' life would have been cut short by an infection? No, he'd be like, zap, right? He could have had an incredibly long life. If you think about some of the other great known world religious figures they lived 80 years some like 90 years jesus 33 i mean he was just getting started he could have built a massive following overthrown the roman government he could have been it could have been the the new empire right Assyria took over most of the what's what's considered the Levant and and beyond Northern Africa the most of the all the surrounding regions of the Mediterranean over into Italy and Spain and Turkey and Lebanon and over into Iraq and Iran And the Babylonians defeated them and the Persians defeated them and Alexander the Great defeated them and then the Romans defeated them Jesus could have conquered them all with a word. Remember in the garden when being arrested, Jesus said, I am. And the men fell back at the power of two words from the mouth of Jesus? Come on. He could heal his wounded soldiers after battle by just going, and they're all, they're all healed. Could any force on earth have stopped him and his army? Of immortal soldiers? <laughs> Instead of doing that and living 80 years, what did Jesus do to authenticate his message? He healed. He healed some people. He healed some people so that the message would be heard. It was never about the healing it was about the message and what is the message come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy my burden is light he received sinners in spite of their sin he fulfilled his purpose as the son who is subservient to the father he honored his commitment made in what is called the eternal covenant of redemption when i say the covenant of redemption i want to make sure you understand what i mean we're talking about before the foundations of the earth were laid there is essentially expressed the covenant between the father of the son and the spirit and that covenant was agreed upon between the three persons of the unit of the the triune god And the role for Jesus would be to take on the flesh of mankind, wrap himself in our weakness, and be slaughtered like an innocent lamb. And he fulfilled his end of the bargain. That was his role. And that started by by being a very Jewish messiah sent to live and minister to the Jews in Israel and, and critically to fulfill God's covenant promises to his covenant people. That was the role for Jesus. But is that the end? No. Consider, secondly, number two, the plan of Jesus. Verse 9 well, let's back up. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, look, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his, magic, for his mercy. So confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, that is, all the promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. Fulfill those promises made to the people through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. It's almost like 1A, 1B. This was the plan of Jesus, if you will, all along. To fulfill the promises made to Israel, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As if in the pre, the, the dawn that, that preceded physical existence, the covenant of redemption, Jesus agrees with the Father and the Spirit. I will live as a man to fulfill the promises made to Israel, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David and to Isaiah and to the people who are descended. And I will cause all the people who are not among the people of Abraham to have hope. This was his plan. You get the point? And Paul uses scripture to prove this point. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. I will praise you among the Gentiles. This is Psalm 1849. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That from Deuteronomy 32. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him, Psalm 117. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. And even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Isaiah 11, also quoted by John the Revelator in Revelation 5 and 22. The Jews held to, they held on, if you will, to an exclusive claim to salvation. It might be open to non-Jews, but they have to convert and keep the law of Moses. And the apostles' argument is simply this. You can't keep the law of Moses. Our forefathers couldn't keep the law of Moses. What makes you think these unfamiliar converts would be able to do so? The truth is, no one can, except for Jesus— He did, and by doing so, he, if you will, signed on the dotted line as the representative for all mankind. You know who signed the other part of the contract? God the Father. As part of that legal ratification, Jesus also ratified the secondary aspect of the contract regarding the welcome of Gentiles into the covenant people of God. This is the gospel. God is merciful to depraved man. Ralph Wardlow puts this in sophisticated language. Ready? Hold on. It's not that. But it just, it's like, what? How? Who? The gospel is the revelation of God's mercy, and the mercy was designed for both Jew and Gentile, for mankind considered as sustaining the common character of sinners. So there you go. Congratulations. All right, you go, wait, what? You're saying everybody's a sinner, Jew and Gentile alike. We all contain the same common characteristic and the gospel is for all. And so Paul argues Jesus' role was that of Jewish Messiah, Jewish king, Jewish man. He lived, walked, (laughs) talked, ate, drank, functioned perfectly as a Jewish man under the law of Moses. But Paul asks essentially here, Addressing the Jews, you think that was the whole plan? He would come and free the Jews from the burden of a law they couldn't keep by keeping it on their behalf as their champion, as their representative? Yes. That's the whole plan? No, he's not just David fighting Goliath On behalf of Israel he's David fighting Goliath on behalf of the whole world Jesus defeated the burden of sin placed on man's shoulders and those who placed their hope in him rush behind him like the army of Israel to participate in the victory and enjoy the spoils Jesus did it all but he did it not for the Jews only but for all who would believe this is Paul's point in quoting the scriptures This was always the plan. You're still hung up on Jew and non-Jew. This was always the plan. Your own scriptures speak of it. Your own songbooks celebrate it. Your own Torah anticipates it. This was always the plan. It was never 1A. It was always 1A and 1B. Paul writes to the Ephesians, he made known unto me the mystery that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. This was the plan all along. Anyone who fails to see this is bound to misunderstand salvation, grace, mercy, the nature and purpose of the scriptures, the reason for God's choosing and blessing Israel over others, and even some of the words of Jesus. It is one of the most disheartening moments for me to be asked by a decades-old Christian, why did God treat Israel differently than everyone else? I go... We have failed as a church. Our pastors have failed you. This was the plan all along. You set aside a people, God reveals Himself and His character. He shows Himself to this people, He gives this people His law. His people then fail to uphold His law, and then the rest of the world goes, You can't keep it either. So what do we do? Through this same people comes the representative, the man who keeps God's standards to perfection and on the behalf of every man, woman, and child lives the perfect life and applies it to your account on the basis of sheer faith, just the smallest of genuine belief. is always the plan. Why were they different? You got a better idea? You got to tell you what. You're God. The world is dreadfully, sinfully broken. You're going to reveal the whole of your character, purpose, love, majesty, mercy, compassion, grace, the whole of yourself to mankind such that they might respond in repentance and confession and receive a grace gift of mercy and salvation. They can't earn it. They can't jump through the hoops. There aren't hoops. They don't have the legs. So how are you going to do it? You got a plan? And then you kind of step back and you go, oh, this was the plan. God shows himself to a people, he sets them aside, he shows that there are no such thing as circumstances that can surround mankind in his sinful, depraved state that will compel him to be able to live up to the standard that God requires to be in his presence. If those circumstances can't generate genuine followership, what hope do any of us have? The answer is none, So someone better give it to us because we're not marching to heaven on our own two feet. And so God says, Here, here's how I'll show you myself. Here's how I'll show you my mercy. Here's the only way to know what, what my love is really like grace. Uncompassionate or unconditional love. Here's a people, here's a plan. Through them, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This was the plan all along. Jesus played a very Jewish role in that plan, but the plan was always to incorporate every tribe, every people, every nation, and to bring us together in one ship under the grace gift of Jesus Christ that we could not earn. So you have a role for Jesus. You have a plan of Jesus. Finally, we have number three, the hope from Jesus the hope from Jesus. And that's where we get to that final sort of benediction in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul says, celebrate. This is remarkable. This is wild. Very different people with very different compulsions, very different standards of life and expectation, and yet, we are one in Christ. This is some wild stuff. Instead of trying to figure it out, Paul says just celebrate. The apostle Paul seems intent on convincing the Gentiles in the opening verse 8, convincing the Gentiles to have some respect for the Jews and some respect for the part that they were to play in God's redeeming of the world. Do not despise them for their failure. We all would have failed pick a people group that God is going to place his love on and place his compassion on and reveal himself to and give them the standards for life, that people group would fail just like Israel did. Don't be silly. It's like Adam. I wouldn't have eaten the apple. I would have let my wife die. You know, oh, shut up. You know, like we all would have done it. That's the point. And so the apostle Paul seems intent on telling the non-Jews, hey, show, have a little appreciation here. This is a marvelous plan God put in place. Have some appreciation for the fact that the Jews meticulously copied and preserved God's word. And that through them, the Messiah was born in the flesh to be the representative for all mankind. Have a little gratitude for the majesty of God's plan in the people of God. But also Paul seems intent on convincing the Jews that are in the room that their own scriptures made this point. God's purpose in choosing Israel was simply to be the agent by which the rest of the world would know him. Instead, by the first century, the Jewish man stands in the temple and says, I thank God that I'm not a woman and that I'm not a Gentile. Like, that makes me better. And then next to him is the sinner beating his chest, saying, I'm a sinful, broken man. Would you forgive me? See, Jesus says, all of heaven rejoices at the sight of the humble man. But the self-righteous, they need no savior. They stand on their own two feet. And they will before the judge. And they will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. This was always the program. And so instead of division, celebrate in God's wisdom. Celebrate his marvelous and excellent plan. View your fellow man as one made in God's image for salvation. You see, this doesn't have anything to do with unity in the church, except it does. How do you overcome division in the church? celebrate God's marvelous plan to unify all of his people into the banner of Christ and suddenly your eyes are taken off of your own preferences and off of the differences that you have with your brother who enjoys a pipe or has a beer or whatever the case may be and suddenly instead of looking at these things and holding on to bitternesses of what she said or what he did all of a sudden your eyes are drawn heavenward to the marvelous plan of God you're celebrating the goodness of what Jesus accomplished on all of our behalf and suddenly these Things seem as petty and insignificant as they truly are. That's the solution to division in the church. Huh? Get your eyes up. It's marvelous. And so we'll note, just briefly by way of conclusion, okay? Three results of Jesus' accomplishments right here in this final verse. Number one, filled with joy. Filled with joy, right? May the God of hope fill you with all Joy. Joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is fleeting. Joy is a blessing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Right? That's a joyful man. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. See, happiness is fleeting, temporal, circumstantial, but joy, the kind of joy Jesus had even as he endured the cross, that joy, the joy of Jesus, is eternal. And no matter your personal discomfort, your griefs, your hardships, your bad luck, even though there is no such thing, despite these things, as you believe, so too you have joy rooted in in eternal things right so you're filled with joy secondly you are sustained by peace sustained by peace how do i mean may the god of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing, in believing, the verb here is pistevo. This is believing, it's present active infinitive, meaning it is a belief that is ongoing. It had an inception, it had a birth, but it has no death. It is initiated by Christ and ongoing. It's not belief that is later, listen, shattered by the moral failures of mere men. Mere men will fail you. Does it shatter your belief? Let me just listen to a podcast this week. Some people who went to a church for like 17 years. And because of the failures of men in leadership, they've left the faith altogether and are exploring this mystical subjective goodness, love, acceptance, It has no foundation, it has no root, it has no objective truth, it has no hope, it's just sort of subjective, just love is love. And how did they get caught up? How are they so steered astray? Well, because men shattered their belief. but belief that is in Christ is ongoing. See, it can't be shattered by the failures of men. It's not belief that is later revoked to keep up with cultural mores. right? Listen to some excellent sermons by a man who had an incredible insight from the scriptures. Looking, I'm watching decades-old YouTube sermons going, man, this guy can teach the Bible. And then, as the culture shifts, so too does the man. So too do his teachings. Shifting with culture, leaving behind true peace. The belief that's ongoing, that sustains your peace, cannot be shattered by the failures of moral men. It is not belief that is revoked to keep up with cultural tides. It's not belief that works like magic words uttered once never to be leaned on again. No, it is present active belief in the person and work of Jesus. As such, listen, the peace that accompanies Jesus' accomplishments is present, active, and ongoing. The peace that comes from Jesus is as ongoing as is your belief. Ergo, if your peace is rattled, it's not because God has changed or Jesus' work is altered, but rather because you have stopped believing. The band Journey had it right. Don't stop believing. Inasmuch as you are actively trusting in the person and work of Jesus, you will have peace in any circumstance. Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is sustained peace, regardless of circumstance, okay? That's the kind of peace that comes with Jesus. Filled with joy, sustained by peace, and then again, filled with hope. Again, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Filled with hope. The word fill you means make filled or fill full. Make complete that which is otherwise incomplete. What do we hope in, friends? Where is our hope set? Wherever it is, if it's anything but Jesus, it's incomplete. But the god of hope fills up that otherwise incomplete place. Money can be stolen, stock markets can crash, property values can plummet. What do we hope in? Physical strength, intellect. Disease can ravage the mind. Unforeseen injury can derail physical strength. What do we hope in? Governments rise and fall, betray the citizenry, weaponize authority to abuse and deceive the population. What do we hope in? You see? See, where all these other things that make promises can fail, can come up empty, can fall short, the hope of Jesus fills full. And so that we would know that he can do what he says he will do, he raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, and thereby promising to raise us up to a new and living hope. So, as we set our minds on the person and work of Jesus, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Father, we thank you for your kind words to us this morning. There are, there are portions of your letters that you wrote to us by the pen of your apostles. <laughs> Uh, that convict us and confront our sinful tendencies. They penetrate the, the quiet recesses of our secret life. And then there are other parts of your scriptures that, that buoy us, that lift our spirits, that remind us of your grand and marvelous activity set in eternity past, because it was your intention to rescue broken sinners like me. And like these folks here gathered in your name, this was your plan all along, because you are a kind and merciful God, who, when we set our hope And fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, the giver of grace. We are filled with joy and hope and we are sustained in peace no matter our circumstances because you are a good and loving Savior. Now May we draw much comfort from these things. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand for one.